0: Hey there! Welcome to Subject Matter Season 4, where we're discovering how to build a strong company culture. We're learning from fast-moving founders and CEOs, and how their cultures make customers want to work with them, and talent want to work for them, in some cases completely remotely. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, the founder of Astutely, and our team is dedicated to supporting B2B leaders to build aligned company cultures at scale. And now, let's get into today's episode. Today's interview is with Matt Munson. Matt is a CEO and executive coach with Sanity Labs, a boutique leadership coaching firm he founded in 2019 that provides coaching to venture-backed and bootstrapped leaders. Matt draws on his own experience as a venture-backed CEO, as well as a variety of coaching disciplines to help others navigate the perilous journey of leadership and organization building. Prior to his coaching work, Matt co founded 2020, the world's largest crowdsourced commercial image catalog, where he served for seven years as CEO until the company's exit in early 2019. On this interview, we discuss why it doesn't matter how much CEOs care if they don't have clarity. We learn what impact radical transparency had on Matt's culture while going through a serious organizational hardship. And finally, we learn why it's worth learning from great investors to see companies as temporary containers rather than wrapping our identities up in them. That last mental model is particularly useful. This was a fascinating interview, one of my favorite ones that I've done so far, and I hope you enjoy this great conversation with Matt Munson. Matt, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and looking forward to our conversation. So I thought we could start with your previous venture, which was 2020. And you were at 2020 for seven years as CEO until the company's exit. And when we last spoke, you mentioned that, as with, I think a lot of our listeners know, entrepreneurship is very much a a game of highs and lows. And one of the phrases you said that really stuck with me is this idea of the arc of leadership. And there comes a point in the arc of leadership where the leader hits a wall. And I'm curious what it was like for you hitting your own wall at whichever point that might be in 2020.
1: As I look back, I came in in the early years, as a lot of first-time founders do, with this idea that starting a company was going to be this quick, direct path to success, and we would know quickly whether or not things were working. As I watched others found and grow companies from the outside- Obviously, I had no idea what it was like on the inside, but from the outside, startups are so often portrayed as this experience of starting and finding product market fit and something people want. And it just grows so quickly. You're hanging on and you're bare knuckled and it's so exciting. And it did not take me long as a founder and CEO to realize that from the inside, things look quite different. As I look back, it's funny because there were many moments in the company where from the outside, we looked very much like I'm describing, where everything looked like it was going well and we were the toast of the town and we had venture capitalists offering us money, but there were also some major downturns. There was a personal one that I've written fairly openly about in the past around the time that we were raising our Series A and the company was going through a a pretty big pivot. We were moving from a product that we had built called Instacanvas that was consumer focused to what would eventually become 2020 moving from helping people sell photos to their friends and family as physical products to actually licensing them to brands and agencies, which ended up being our eventual core business model. And our Series A was very much a Hail Mary to keep the company alive, where we we had this core asset and community, but it was not clear that we had a business. We'd grown to a million in revenue quite quickly, but things had topped out and we were running out of cash. Around the time that we were about to go out and raise, I went through a pretty big personal experience where my wife at the time shared with me that she had had an affair and that the second child that we had was not mine. And she shared that with me just as I was getting ready to head up that week for fundraising. So that stands out as a major wall-hitting event for me and raised a lot of questions of how do I navigate all of these personal changes and losses while also trying to keep the wheels on a company and show up as a leader. How do I resource myself so that I can move forward and also take care of all these employees and their families and our shareholders? The other one that stands out, a year and a half or so after we raced that Series A, we hit another major wall where we, like a lot of startups, had kind of gotten over our skis on on hiring and our understanding of how ready we were for scale, we found ourselves with 55 or so employees and revenue, simply not scaling fast enough to keep up. So our burn was too high, runway was too short. And we went through a very difficult decision as founders and as a leadership team to go through a major layoff and to cut the company from 55 down to 20 and retool our entire approach to the market. With that change came some really difficult internally facing questions, first and foremost for myself as a leader of how am I going to keep this team motivated? How am I going to recover from the feelings of shame and frustration that I've led us astray perhaps yet again? Mm. And that for me was a time of significant reflection and also a time of what became pretty radical experimentation of a different way of managing my own psychology and a different way of leading with the support of of a coach and some great people around me at the time.
0: Let's start with the first story that you shared around the time of raising your Series A. There's a lot of talk these days about integrating your personal and professional self at work and being able to kind of bring your authentic self to work. What really sticks out to me here, though, is that in a crisis situation, such as the one you were in, you really had to separate the personal self, the battle you were fighting there, from your professional self and what was going on at at 2020. So how did you think about creating that separation? And what was it like for you realizing that you had all of this that you were working through at home, but at the same time, you had a team that needed you, you had to be a leader to show up. How did you think about balancing those two variables?
1: There was a question that became very salient in my life at that time of how do I keep my own head straight? How do I put my own oxygen mask on? How do I create space in my life for grieving, the change that's happening, for making sure that I've got space in my days and weeks To process that and sit with it which this specific example may be quite acute but it's every day right now as a coach i speak with a leader or two who are sitting in the midst of their own change and whatever loss or stress or family dynamic or professional dynamic may be going on so this question of how do we manage our our minds in a way that we're ready to show up for the work at hand with the team or ready to lead that was a big one for me at the time This idea of separation, I think I hold differently. And that change actually began around that time and was in a way forced on me by the circumstances. And two examples come to mind. One was I found myself having to say something to my team that I was leading. And we had about a dozen or so employees at that time. They knew that we were heading out to fundraise. And I found myself needing to hit the brakes for a week or two to get some space to kind of manage the news that was happening and the changes that were going to be happening in my life. And I couldn't think of a way to do that that felt either better or easier than simply being honest with the team. And so I made the choice with the support of my co-founders to simply share openly with the team what was going on in my life. And I'm so glad that I did. What I was afraid of is that they would freak out and think, man, we're already running out of cash and we're going through this pivot. Should I be interviewing, looking for another job? And now our CEO is going through this personal crisis. And I was really worried for how they would respond. I'm getting even chills kind of recalling the experience. And what I found was that we had actually hired a group of adults and they handled the news in a very adult and supportive fashion it was really a breakthrough for my relationship with the team and the beginning of an exploration of what is it to invite the team into deeper partnership with me as CEO, us as founders, us as a leadership team. And the second piece that I'm looking back and remembering was kind of forced on me that ended up being a tremendous gift was as we were going through the process, we ended up fortunately with a very competitive fundraising process and several term sheets. And we were, evaluating a few different potential partners. And as we were honing in on one, our corporate counsel, who was apprised of the changes going on in my own life, raised the concern to me that I needed to disclose to whatever partner we were going to be working with what was going on in my life, which is the case anytime there's a potential large change in a cap table. And in my case, when you've got a potential marriage ending, it raises some questions about how the cap table is going to sort out And so I flew up to Silicon Valley and took a walk down Sand Hill Road with Maha Ibrahim, who ended up being our lead investor, and days away from making the decision to go with her, shared with her what was going on in my life, and similarly, walked into that conversation with a lot of anxiety and fear that she would walk away from the deal or think that I wasn't a good person to be partnering with because I was going through this personal challenge. And similarly to the team, found in her a very receptive partner. And it really began our working relationship from a place of trust and openness. And that trust and openness benefited us
0: and eventually the larger board greatly in the ensuing years. First of all, I think it's fascinating that you were able to challenge the questions so instantly and actually say that even when times are toughest, you don't have to separate your personal and professional self from work. And actually, if you're working with a team of adults, they're going to have empathy for what's going on outside of the four walls of your office and inside the four walls of your home. And it seems like this was mirrored in your conversation with Mahar as well, and being able to share openly what had happened. And something that we spoke about last time was this concept which i know you're a a, a proponent of which is radical transparency and it seems to me that these experiences were either catalysts for or around the same time as you were starting to think about this concept of being radically transparent with your team so i'd love if you could share how you applied radical transparency at 2020 and what that did for your company culture
1: Your question is bringing to mind that period of time shortly after we went through the layoffs and we're thinking, how do we reset this team? Those 20 who stayed ended up becoming very much the core team that helped to scale the business going forward, uh, resulting years later in our successful sale. A couple of practices that come to mind, the first thing that we did to help that team reset was to take everyone to a couple of day offsite, a few hours from Los Angeles, and we got everyone staying in a house together, and we opened up time and space for the hardest questions that people were holding. Some of that was traditional business stuff, so people were curious about the financial situation of the company, and prior to that, we had been open about kind of high level metrics, but we had never opened up the full financials or the full board packets. Salary information was not available to the team, and we began to change that. So the first thing we did is we, we walked through the historical financials and the forward-facing financial model with the team. We stepped into the belief that if we wanted everyone to act like an owner and to stick around with the resiliency of an owner, we needed to treat them like an owner. And so we began to share those numbers with everyone, shared the plan with everyone, opened it up for questions, we also moved into a transparent compensation model, as has been modeled by Buffer and others, and invited the team into our thought process and how we were budgeting, recruiting, how we were managing career progressions. We also stepped into really more radical transparency on the human side. We did some of that in the context of off-sites through things like origin stories, holding space for people to share more of their lives with one another as a way of building trust and intimacy. We also brought some things into our day-to-day practices in the company, and a, and a very simple one that I often share with clients on the coaching side. We began to start every meeting with a check-in, and we picked a very simple model where we'd go around the circle and each person would share whether they were red, yellow, or green, Green is I'm coming in, I'm present, I'm ready to be here. Red is kind of the opposite of I'm physically here, but there's something big going on outside of the room or the building or in my life that's really got my attention. Could be some news of a sick child or anything else. And the invitation is to share what color you are. And if you like any more context, you don't have to. And the question that would often follow if anyone was checking in yellow or red was, is there anything that we as a team can do to support you? And the person was welcome to say no. But if they said yes, often a meeting where historically we may just come in and blow through whatever's going on for everyone and just jump into the work. Now we're holding space to actually look at what's going on. How can we provide some support for you? Shall we proceed with the meeting or shall we bookmark this and come back later? And what we discovered over time as a practice is it was a way of acknowledging that we are humans and we bring our humanity into the work. It was also a way of creating more intimacy and friendship among the team. And lastly, it was a way to support people's transition into the work. So we found that while we were maybe spending three to five minutes, sometimes a minute, sometimes 20 on a check-in, we were getting way more bang for our buck on on the actual work time, because now we've got people that are present, available, connected with one another, And that over time resulted in a very closely knit team that was more resilient and able to achieve great things together.
0: So it seems like there's a correlation between how you invest in your team as people and how they show up as professionals. So the more you're able to have these check-ins taking their pulse, if you like, on how they're feeling at work, the better they can perform. So how would you recommend structuring this? We have a fair amount of leaders that listen to our show. And if they're curious to to test this and to be more intentional about checking in with their team, spending time with them, kind of enabling them to be present, which then builds resiliency, how would you recommend they structure those interactions?
1: So it may be helpful to zoom out just for a moment I can imagine there are listeners that are thinking what I might think the first time I'm exposed to this way of looking at leadership, which is, here we go, squishy leadership. All we're worried about is everyone's feelings and these millennials and yada, yada, yada. And I can feel empathy for that. So zooming out, what is the the role of a CEO? So the, the accountabilities of a CEO traditionally are to hold the vision, to recruit and retain the team necessary to execute that vision and to resource that team with capital, clarity and care. Now let's zoom in on those last pieces, capital, clarity and care. The capital one is pretty straightforward. We got to have enough money in the bank to support a budget. We got to set a budget to in line with the near-term vision. The clarity and care are where I see a lot of early first-time CEOs get hung up. So what we're talking about here is the care piece, which is most often left out, which is to acknowledge that a company, by definition, is a group of humans that we're trying to bring together to work together toward a shared mission. But they're a group of humans, and we have to start there. If we ignore their humanity and the fact that they're bringing emotions and experiences and histories and stresses and anxieties into the work, we're going to get a very less than ideal level of output, collaboration, problem solving from the people. The clarity piece is also critical here, though, because if we have care without clarity, we end up in this millennial death spiral or whatever it may be that our listeners are envisioning as we're talking about the touchy-feely stuff. And the clarity piece is to ensure that the team is very clear from the top down on things like, where are we going? What is our long-term mission and vision here? What matters in the near term? What are the objectives that are critical for this company this quarter and this year? And if we go across the team, whether it's 10 people or 1,000 people, and we ask each person, if they're clear, we should get the same answer from each person. We should also get the same answer on what are the values here? And values are nothing more than what we're agreeing upon as a group around the way that we're going to do the work together. We might also ask about things like, how are you held accountable? What does success look like in your role? Or what does success look like for this objective right now? How are we measuring success? How are you evaluated in your personal contribution? When are you given feedback and in what form? How are decisions about your career progression made? What I'm hinting at here or making explicit is that the care piece to be effective needs to be paired with clarity. My longtime coach would often describe this from the Buddhist standpoint of a successful warrior has a strong spine and an open heart. But that those two things, the open heart that acknowledges humanity and invites people in and the strong spine that is disciplined and rigid and reliable, that those are two parts of the same
0: body. I love that analogy. It strikes me that everything is connected here and whether you are a really disciplined operator or you're someone who's incredibly empathetic by nature and naturally caring, you need to be able to balance the two. I'm curious whether you see this as perhaps as the CEO can kind of delegate this responsibility to their leadership team. So how would it work, for example, if a CEO was naturally more caring and was less oriented on details, for example, and a little bit more fuzzy with the clarity, would you say the CEO just needs to work on that stronger spine using the Buddhist analogy? Or is that a case where they could hire a really process oriented coo to create that very high resolution clarity
1: i imagine some of this is stylistic but a very supportive evolution for me and my time as ceo was this realization that i don't need to do it all and so your question raises for me my own experience of seeing That I had this myth in my head of this CEO as this person who knew all the answers and had this crystal clear vision and had a Steve Jobs-esque understanding of product and also had this incredible business acumen and blah, 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 blah. And I, for myself, hit a point where I just realized that that was not what was happening for me. And maybe out there somewhere, there was some mythical CEO who had all of those qualities, but it wasn't me. And I was going, to all I had to work with was who I was. And so... That, for me, was an evolution into realizing that I, that second accountability as CEO of recruiting and retaining that team, for the CEO, that often means the leadership or executive team around the CEO, as well as the board, which we can talk about separately. So I would say very much that it is not only an option, but the responsibility of the CEO to recruit around herself the people that are needed to lead the company, to fill gaps, and then to invite that team into the work. So I was in a coaching session with a founder CEO a week or two ago, and she had locked herself in her office for a couple of days and was hashing out the OKRs for the company for the year, which again, some of this is stylistic and anyone listening is welcome to run their company in whatever way they see fit. What the CEO and I explored in the session was how was it helping her to be trying to figure all this out on her own? And then also, how was it ineffective? And for her, what we began to see was that she was carrying this assumption that I've got to be the one to figure all this out, but that in prior practice, that setting the goals and then assigning them to people was really getting in the way of inviting those people into the process and into buy-in and also into an opportunity to mirror blind spots that she might be holding. What we might do here is hold that it is the role of a leadership team, not only to have leadership of each of their individual areas of the business... So you're coming in as head of product or head of engineering. But when you step into the leadership group, you're actually, in a way, taking off that hat and stepping into a a circle of partnership as leaders, where part of what you are doing is that CEO down piece of helping the team to have that clarity and that care.
0: And that is a shared effort across the team. So it doesn't just have to reside with the CEO. And in fact, the CEO's job is to delegate that load. Something that you've, I've noticed you saying throughout this interview, which I'd love to dig into is this phrase I'm very intrigued by, which is to hold an idea. You say, uh, this is how I hold something or how I'm holding this. Could you explain what it means for you to hold an idea? Because I I think it, I, I get the sense that it speaks to a nuanced understanding of beliefs and that we're we're holding on to them. So could you perhaps elaborate on that? I was on a
1: in a session recently where a CEO shared that in their business they hold beliefs passionately but lightly. I love the idea of being very passionate about the way that we are seeing something and the experience that we have or the data that we have that backs that up, but pairing that with the humility that everything that we're doing here is very much a work in progress. In my time as a founder and CEO, in our culture, we were very data-driven and we aimed to invite people into intense debate. But I think we also learned over time, and we got this very wrong in the early years, but over time we learned that there was a lot of benefit to holding our beliefs lightly and inviting them to change. Say a startup or a company, in some ways, is simply a vision for how things might be and a set of hypotheses that underlie that. Vision and the work of the founders and the team over months and years is to discover where those hypotheses are wrong. So, it is in a way the work of finding out where you're wrong. And I think I carry that into coaching where my role is to partner with a leader to remove some of the loneliness and create some larger space for exploration. I think I Aim to come into it with that, with a similar type of humility. Of I am very much learning here, and I'm
0: learning alongside of a client in the room. This idea of humility, then let's uh, let's dig into that a little bit, and maybe this could be an interesting thread to go back to the um, the experience of laying off, going from fifty five employees to twenty. It seems like. The people that stayed formed a very firm foundation for what was to be your growth. And I'm struck by something that Ben Horowitz documents in The Hard Thing About Hard Things, where he had to let go of just under 200 employees. And his coach, Bill Campbell, said, You can't go to the new product launch on Monday. You're going to have to stay in the office. And you're going to have to stay in the office to let everyone know where they stand. And Ben reflects and says, that was such a valuable piece of advice for me, because if I hadn't treated the employees well who left, then the people who stayed would never have been able to trust me. I wonder if, if anything comes up for you in how you learned to to let people go and to do that in a manner that, where you can hold the space for them and, and you can be the, the CEO that they need you to be.
1: Something that my coach shared with me at the time is that everyone who's staying is going to be taking very careful notes on the way that the people departing are treated. And for the rest of the lifespan of this company, this will become a milestone event that illustrates the actual values of the company. So we can put whatever words we want on the wall and call them our values, but the commitments that actually guide our behaviors in the hardest moments are the real values. And there's congruency when those match the words on the wall and when there's not, there's incongruency and that's problematic. So what we did our best to do at the time was to look at the people that were leaving as our people, just as we did the people that were staying and to look at how would we want to be cared for and treated if we were going through a transition this challenging. Again, we didn't do it perfectly, but as tactical examples, some things that we tried to get right at the time, we tried to make sure that we were as generous as possible with severance. We tried to ensure that we were facilitating the transition for people. So we made some leaders from our people group available to them to help with career planning and interviewing, CV preparation. We sourced lists of comparable companies in the area that were hiring for the roles that we were laying off. We created some space for those people to be in connection with the team that were staying. Part of what allowed the people that were staying to stick and to dig back in together were our openness about how we were managing all of that and also our the humility that we were not getting it perfect, but doing the best that we could with the time and resources available.
0: It really strikes me that the, the model of an exemplary CEO is someone who sees their company as a chapter in the employee's life, but not the full book, and is willing to invest in their future beyond the company because they appreciate the work that they did for this this specific chapter. And it does seem to me that there's a choice that you had to make there, which is we desperately need cash. We could cut corners here and save on our PL but actually you'd be potentially jeopardizing the most important resource in your business, which is the people who are powering it. So being able to reframe that decision as an investment in both the growth of your company's future, but in the growth of your employees' future who have given you so much seems like that was really the catalyst that let you start this next chapter on such firm footing.
1: There's a concept here that, I've been exploring with a few clients and seems to be resonant, which is this idea of a company as a container and a temporal one at that. This is one thing that investors get really right, is great investors look at companies as these temporary things. And they'll talk about loving to invest repeatedly in founders, whether the founders are very successful or modestly successful or utterly fail in their first venture great investors invest in entrepreneurs for the long run. And it also serves them because they can look at their investments as a portfolio and know that some are going to do great at certain times and others better at others. And some will flame out and some will return the fund. What's come up in coaching recently that I I think actually can be a, a source of clarity for us as CEOs and startup founders or employees as well is to hold these companies as containers and to see that they are temporary. Whether they go public or sell in a year or go bankrupt, they are temporary. And as founders, it can be helpful to to not pack so much anxiety into this one container, that this needs to be my life's work and needs to be the proof that I'm valuable and needs to take care of my family forever and yada, yada, yada. And if this company doesn't work in just the way that I'm hoping it does, what am I possibly gonna do next? And so there's a freedom there that can ground us and enable us actually to approach the difficulty of the work with clarity and with perspective if we hold it as a container. And I think as you're raising also for employees to look at this as employees are going to come in and out of this container and perhaps in and out of the next one or in and out of a container elsewhere. And part of the job of the leaders is to ensure that that those transitions are supporting their careers and their humanity and their families, and that we're finding alignment there so that we can bring these group of humans together for the time they are together and get them
0: pulling in the same direction and in and supported in that work together. This reminds me of a concept that you shared the last time we spoke, which is this idea of maintaining a healthy sense of separation, because if your emotions are tied to a business's performance over the long run then by definition you're going to be experiencing a mix of between euphoria and terror at the highs and the lows it does seem that one of the keys to sustainable performance for leaders is being able to separate themselves from their work and to see as you uh, as you say this mental model of the company as the container to say i'm containing my work my output within this temporary thing, but there's also my life. I have all these other interests, friends, my home, my family, etc., that I'm gonna keep investing in. And that's not my work. Uh, this is something I actually I learned the hard way a few years ago, which is that I very much tied my worth to my work. And I was just strapped into that emotional roller coaster, as you say, like going up and down every month. And it was horrendous. And it's only in the last 12 months or so that I've managed to kind of take a step back from seeing the the success of the business as my personal success and to have that objectivity. So that really does resonate for me as well.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you raising that. And I imagine it's normalizing for many people listening. I can flash back to my own earlier years as CEO and cringe, a memory came up of one of our engineers leading a product demo and it's just not going very well. And I think it was a particularly stressful time in the early years of the business. And I walked into this standup after that and just snapped at him and made it very clear in a raised voice that this was not a place for mediocrity. And I'm sure somewhere in my, the way that I was holding leadership at the time, I thought I was doing great and I was not. I was so wrapped up with my own sense of well-being in the business that I could not hold any curiosity for what was actually going on. And as a result, we lost one of our great engineers, had some turnover. And as I zoom out now and think about that, if we go back to what is the actual job of a CEO, things like holding a vision or supporting a team with care these are things that are very hard to do if your whole sense of your self-worth is wrapped up in the metrics of the given month or quarter or year. And it turns out most of the job is actually about trying to find your way to having a clear head and a sense of groundedness because the work is about supporting people and supporting people through the creative solving of difficult problems. To creatively solve difficult problems, we need full access to our brains, we need our prefrontal cortexes fully online, and we need to be able to think deeply and to be creative. And those are all things that are hard to do if we're in a state of anxiety and panic. So I often find coaching clients coming in where working in this intense, fully wrapped into the work, my identity is all in the line, it kind of worked in the early years and at least got things off the ground. But they've hit a point, they've hit a wall where either because of burnout or health problems or team turnover or lack, inability to scale the business, they're realizing that this way of working is not going to be the thing that'll help them move forward. And so that begins a partnership and exploration of how might we find some separation for you between your sense of identity and well-being and the business? How might we actually even look at what is it that you use to define yourself How do you ground yourself in the mornings before you come into the office? How do you hold your relationship with the business and with your leaders? And this is often a lot of the work in the early days of a coaching partnership aimed toward the end of helping that person as a leader show up from a more grounded place and actually do the work that they need
0: to be doing. I thought this would be a a good opportunity to get a little bit tactical. And there's a couple of insights which really struck a chord with me the last time we spoke and I'd love to circle back to them. And you shared this idea of scheduling time to worry into our days. I think this links really nicely to what you've shared of making sure that your brain is completely clear, operating at full capacity, and you don't have any anxious stories or loops playing in the background. So why is it worth are scheduling time into our day to worry as leaders.
1: Yeah, I love this one. And there's there's tactical details on this. On my blog, mattmunson.me, there's a post called, I think it's called, A Morning Practice for Imperfect Leaders. And all of the parts there come from my own exploration of how do I survive what's going on in my life all the way back to the, those early days of my developing divorce. And some of the losses there that were happening concurrently with some of the most challenging months for us as a company. And a couple of things that came to light that became practices for me. One was I began to see that worries would come up in my brain and whether it was a huge thing or a small thing, it would take my full attention. And I started to get curious about how can I actually manage anxiety or be proactive about anxiety? And if you look into the data, there's some interesting data behind this idea of scheduling time to worry. We can actually train our brains that there's a space in the day where this is gonna happen and we've got that time blocked off. And thus, if we find ourselves in the afternoon or evening or any time that's not that time, we actually can train our brains to, that our brains will more effectively set aside the anxiety or worry and leave it for that time. Now, how do we spend that time? What I found very effective in my own practice and now have built out with a lot of clients along the way is a practice of, uh, in the morning, just getting all the worries out. And I'm a nerd, so I like to do this on a Trello board. And what I found effective is actually categorizing the worries. So I will get anything that's in my brain out and I will categorize it whether it's a, a quick fix or a financial question or an opportunity or an everyday work-related thing, a relationship issue, a parenting issue, an issue of health and wellness, an issue of death and catastrophic loss. So all the way from lightweight to super heavy. And I'll put it down. And then once just getting it down is an incredibly effective step, I've found. And the next thing, and this is, all happens very quickly. I'll, I'll spend you know three to five minutes on this in the morning. The next thing I'll do is with a thought, I'll pair the advice to myself, much like a friend would. So if it's a a financial setback, I may note like that, yes, this has been a setback, but you're working on this thing, A and B, and this is kind of just part of the work that we're in. What we're doing here is we're actually noting where there are anxieties that we can take action on and then pairing the action with the anxiety there are two columns that I use to kind of move things to once as they pass. One is resolved and one is deemed no longer important. And I've been doing this now for six or seven years. And I have a massive list of things that at one time were areas of anxiety, but that I've since resolved and I can look back and see that. And I also have this massive column of things that I, after time saw not to be important. So I have another massive list of things that at a time I thought were really problematic. And as time passed, I realized they didn't matter at all. And so if I'm in a morning where I'm feeling particularly anxious or offline or worried, I can look through years of history of things that I've solved my way through or things that with some perspective didn't matter. And this pairing this scheduled time of worry with a scheduled time of gratitude, which you can speak about as well if you'd like, has proven for me to be a very powerful and brief practice in the morning and something that we'll often work on with clients looking for ways to manage their own psychology in particularly difficult times.
0: I think there's two things to underscore here. One is that by creating the container to worry, we're priming our brains very subconsciously to save it for that time. And so why why I'm very interested to explore this is this practice really, I would imagine, doesn't shine actually when you're doing it. It's like prehab. Instead of rehab afterwards, it's like prehabilitation, preventative measure for when there is a crisis and something comes up, then your brain can just think, oh, I'm going to save that for the worry session. That's okay. The other characteristic that I really like here, and I've seen really great applicability for this in myself personally is being able to track a timeline of your mental progress. So I just moved to London last month and I packed a couple of journals that I'm writing at the moment but I also packed three journals from the past. I packed the most recent two journals that I finished and I also packed my journal from my year living in New York which was a very transformative time for me and the reason that I packed them is because rereading these journals is like retracing the corridors of my mind. It's things that I've already read and ideas that I've already had, but I can see the the battles I was going through, the breakthroughs I was making, and just being able to see that actually that doesn't worry me anymore, or I'm not anxious about that, I've overcome that, is really strengthening in realizing that it's all part of a process. We're climbing a mountain slowly, but having these triggers in your worry practice to be able to zoom out and say, actually, I'm not worried about that anymore. I'm going to mark that as resolved. I can imagine it's quite a strengthening tool. Even as you mentioned mountain
1: climbing, what comes up for me is if you've ever climbed mountains, you have had this experience where you can see the next peak, but it, it is not the summit. And if you've summit a mountain, you may climb from two in the morning until noon, and you may go through a dozen or two dozen what you perceive to be these peaks and climb over them and then see the next one coming. And if you can zoom out and you have the whole map, which it sounds like your journals in a way are for you, you can see that while I'm having the experience of peak, 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 and it can feel almost repetitive and like I'm not making any progress if I zoom out and journals are a great tool for this. I can see that I've actually made tremendous progress. And if I'm clear on where I'm going and can find some way to track progress toward that goal, then I can see that I'm actually on my way to the summit. But it can be just from a place of empathy and to normalize some of this, I find in my own growth and my own life that it's so easy to get stuck in that mental kind of self-attack of, man, here I am again, I've been working on these issues for years, and I still have mornings where my anxiety is present, or I'm feeling depressed, or I'm feeling like I'm not good enough in my work. And, you know, just to normalize, like, those mornings never went fully away in my time as a CEO, and they don't go fully away in my time as a coach. So I, I love the idea of giving ourselves resources to, to look at where we have made progress, and to help ourselves kind of zoom out and see that things, in fact, are
0: changing. It's a great point, and you make me realize that these are really tools for perspective because you're able to see the more complete or the high-resolution map of your personal journey. Something you have shared a couple of times which I'd be really interested to dig into is this subtle phrase of normalizing an experience. One thing I really appreciate and have appreciated about our conversation today is that when I share an experience or there's something that is more vulnerable perhaps that comes up, you're very ready to say and just to normalize that for you and then open up a little bit yourself. And that makes me feel understood. It makes me feel more comfortable. I'd be really interested to understand how you use this idea of normalizing with the founders and CEOs that you work with? Because being a founder and CEO is very lonely as a journey. And I can imagine that this normalizing is quite an effective tool to create relatability. So how do you think about that?
1: In my experience, many of us, and put myself at the top of this list, we start our entrepreneurial journey or our work life with this understanding of the experience that others are having. Mm but that understanding is only coming from their outside, what we're seeing from them in the press or in what they're willing to put online. And we fill in all the gaps in our own minds. I often hear clients talk about other CEOs, th- this mythical other CEO who doesn't have self-doubt and doesn't have anxiety and doesn't wonder whether or not they can live <laughs> up to the role and and yeah. has beautiful product vision and knows exactly what to tell their team and never struggles to raise money and on and on down the list. And I have a clear memory in my mind of um, my first experience of feeling like I was seeing a little bit behind the scenes in this mythical Silicon Valley. and we went to a, I guess it was like a founder dinner put on my first round capital when, when they first invested in us. And I remember sitting down at the dinner with like 200 people and to my right was Leah who was running TaskRabbit and the Hotel Tonight founder was over there and all these people that I'd been reading about in TechCrunch for years. And I felt so anxious being there because in my mind, they were on this pedestal. And one of the great privileges of getting to spend time with them was not to see how great they were. And they were great. Like, they're, parts of them, they are incredibly gifted people, but was to see their humanity. And one of the great gifts of over time as a founder of making friendships with other founders where we could be more real about what was actually going on was to see, oh, like, what we're reading in the press or sharing online is 5%, not 95% of the experience. One of the great privileges of being a coach is to get to sit and to hear how shared that most of the challenges are that we face when we talk about normalizing or when, when I use the word normalizing, what I'm hoping to invite is for us to step away from this myth of there are leaders who don't struggle with this, who don't wonder if they're up for it or who don't lay awake at 3am wondering if the business is going to fail and their life's work is going to go down the tubes and what are they going to do next? Or are they leading their team astray or, you know, on and on down the list. But that these are very shared experiences, that anxiety is a very shared experience, that the majority of founder CEOs deal with depression as a frequent, if not everyday experience. And no one's talking about that. I come into the work with the belief that if we can move toward a world where we are open about these things and where we can share them with one another, we can move to a place where we're actually not only more supported and healthier, but more effective in the craft. And so that's in normalizing what I'm looking for is how can we create space to talk openly about what's going on for us? And if I can play a a small role in us stepping into that conversation, that's something that I'm very much up for.
0: It strikes me as coming back to this powerful ingredient for building relationships, which is if there's a moment in a conversation where you're speaking to a client or to a new contact, perhaps you've gone for a coffee with someone you've been introduced to, And there's a thought that goes through their brain when you're holding the space and they think, man, Matt really gets me. He really gets me, you know. That's this moment where you've made them feel understood. And when people feel understood, that's the moment that relationships connect. That's when someone is able to open up. And I think the really interesting shift we're seeing, as you shared earlier, is this kind of wishy-washy, if you like, style of leadership that more traditional leaders perhaps are a bit more abrasive to, but millennials are far more embracing of, it's all about creating relatability and being able to open up. And so if you have a younger workforce, people who are expecting to bring their full selves to work, to be authentic, to be able to have emotional conversations about their emotions, then leading by example there and normalizing these experiences strikes me as a very powerful catalyst for making them feel understood at your company.
1: Yeah, that certainly resonates. And, and back to this idea of pairing clarity with care or pairing an open heart and a strong spine, I very much don't believe that this needs to be an either or. I don't actually believe that this is a new thing either, although it often gets packaged in with with millennials and and changes in the modern workforce. But the idea of a company is a group of people coming together on a shared mission. People are motivated by one of two things, either fear or love. And you can run a team on fear, where if I don't do a good job, I'm not gonna get promoted, or I'm not gonna have a job, or I'm not gonna take care of my family, and that'll work for a while. But if you think people will work hard for fear, you should see them work for love. And this isn't squishy love. This isn't, you know, whatever you do, you have a place here, squishy bullshit. This is clarity on the work we're doing, how it matters, what success looks like, paired with caring about the your humanity and your experience and what it is to support you. And that, for as long as I understand, is as a recipe for teamwork and collaboration among humans, which is what we're looking to do in a company.
0: Really strikes me this idea of fear and love is, is the difference between a zero-sum game and a positive-sum game. So for fear, you are hoarding the power yourself, making it very clear that where the hierarchy extends. If you love your team, though, you have to share the power openly. You have to be able to support them and to embrace them and that's a positive sum game rather than taking slices of someone else's pie you're baking a bigger pie together so yeah i don't think there's anything squishy about it frankly
1: what we might hold here that we're looking for is alignment so if we can find alignment where we have a group of humans working toward a shared mission and where the end goal and the journey along the way support Not only a change in the world we're trying to make as a company, not only a financial outcome for shareholders, but also support the lives, the the present day and future lives that our employees are looking for for themselves, if we can find alignment there man, like people will talk about looking for hard work and looking for people that are bought in and that will go through the crazy ups and downs of startup life and to be resilient and to be thoughtful and curious and creative and to grow. That's a powerful recipe. And where there's misalignment is where we see difficult cultures, founder burnout, challenges between leadership and a board and a lot of painful stuff. So often we're looking for what we're looking for here is where can we find alignment and help people get pulling in the same direction.
0: I think that is a really powerful note to end today's interview on this idea of as the CEOs as leaders in our companies we are really there to align our teams around a mission but also giving them the clarity of where we're going and the care so they feel empowered that they can get there as well. Matt, I really appreciate you taking the time today. This has been real joy. And if our audience would like to keep up with you and follow your ideas online, where can they do so? I'm at Matt Munns on Twitter,
1: M-A-T-T-M-U-N S, and my blog is at mattmunson.me. Our coaching practice is at sanitylabs.co. And I think to return to normalizing on a closing note, we've shared a lot of North Star principles here of where we're looking to go as leaders. And There is no perfect. Uh, I have yet to meet a, a leader or work with a client who is getting all of this right, myself included. And what we do in coaching is actually look to provide support through the journey, both to the leader and the team. So anyone who's listening that's feeling like any of this is far off, you are not alone. We all start far off and there is an exploration to be had. And if partnership would be helpful in that exploration, we would love to talk.
0: Fantastic. Matt, thanks so much. It's been an honor to be with you. Thank you, Ben. Hey, it's Ben here. Just before you head off, one quick thing. This podcast teaches you the skill of empathetic communication. And if you're interested in accelerating your empathetic communication and to start applying it to your brand and business... We've created an actionable five-step checklist which breaks down the exact steps you need to take to unlock this skill and start creating messages that connect with your customers and employees' heads and hearts. You can download it for free over on our website, weareastutely.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Subject Matter.